From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. Science and technology that is accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. And this morning we speak first with Dr. Jamie Farrell, seismologist and professor of geology and geophysics at the University of Utah. He'll talk about the powerful earthquake that struck Turkey and what hazards our own Wasatch Fault present. Then local resident Megan Vita takes us on a cryptocurrency 101 odyssey for those listeners who want to sharpen their tools for the evolving financial world. And might I say, financial world, cultural world, <laughs> gaming world, and all these worlds that we probably aren't even aware of. Exactly. <laughs> Coming, new ones every day. That's right. So stay with us. We'll be right back after these words from our underwriters. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. Our next guest is Dr. Jamie Farrell, Research Assistant Professor of Geology and Geophysics at the University of Utah and an affiliated faculty member at the U of U seismograph stations. Dr. Farrell joins us to talk about the powerful earthquake that struck Turkey and what hazards our own Wasatch Fault presents. Dr. Farrell, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you for having me. Early morning on February 6th, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake occurred in Turkey, causing massive devastation. And then 11 hours later, it was followed up with a 7.5 aftershock. From a geologic perspective, why was this earthquake so powerful? Well, there's a history of large earthquakes in that part of the world. I mean, they've had them in Turkey for a long time. There's a lot of historical records of large damaging earthquakes in Syria, not historically, but going back with the rec records that we see and, and um, things that have been written down. But, you know, this is an active part of the world and they, they have earthquakes there. So it's not surprising that they had a big earthquake there. Just the amount of devastation is, is mind-boggling, but, but not surprising that there is a large earthquake in that part of the world. So we all live on or near the Wasatch Fault here in Utah. How does our own fault zone compare to what happened in, or the fault zone in Turkey? So there are different types of fault zones. So um, the faults there are associated with plate boundaries. So, you know, the earth is divided into many tectonic plates and, and the faults there are part of these tectonic boundaries. The fall here we have is in the middle of a, of a tectonic plate, in the middle of the North American plate. In addition, the faults that ruptured in Turkey are what, call, what are called strike-slip faults. So that's where two of these plates are kind of sliding next to each other um, horizontally. And the, the, the fault we have here, the Wasatch Fault in Utah, is what's called a normal fault. And that's um, accommodating extension where the western U.S. is stretching apart. So on the normal fault, when it ruptures, the valley side drops down and the mountain side moves up. So it's a different type of, of faulting that's occurring. So Jamie, that type of faulting then wouldn't result, I mean, it would result over time in changes in the mountains versus the valley, but would it have the same sort of impacts that the type of fault did in Turkey? Well, the strike slip faults tend to be a little bit larger magnitude than normal fault earthquakes. Mm -hmm. They tend to be able to produce larger earthquakes. Um, for example, you know, the San Andreas Fault in California is a strike slip fault, same type of fault on a plate boundary. So it's been known to produce very large magnitude earthquakes. And um, these particular faults are, 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 are bigger and longer than the Wasatch Fault. So, you know, a fault can only produce 
a big enough earthquake depending on the size of the fault. So the longer the fault, if the whole thing ruptures at once, it can produce a bigger earthquake. The Wasatch Fault just isn't big enough or long enough to produce these really, really large earthquakes, although it is big enough to produce very damaging um, earthquakes in the magnitude 7 to 7.5 range. So I think for a layperson, when we hear of a devastating earthquake like last week's in Turkey, there are a series of things that we do. And one of those is, you know, we look up where are all the faults near us. And, and you know, in my case, I was looking at the fault along the Aleutian Islands being so long and the San Andreas Fault being so long. But I'm wondering what a seismologist does immediately following an earthquake like this. As a seismologist, you know, like I said before, I wasn't surprised that there was a big earthquake in that part of the world because they've had them before. But you do look where it's at, you know, what kind of cities are by it because, you know, the, the, the amount of damage that occurs from an earthquake is really a factor of two things. One, size of the earthquake, how, how strong of ground shaking it produces. And then two, the built environment around the earthquake. You know, I always like to tell people a big earthquake in Tokyo doesn't necessarily do a lot of damage because Tokyo builds structures to withstand that ground shaking. So they feel a lot of ground shaking, but there's not, you know, as many as much damage. But a large earthquake in Turkey collapses a lot of buildings because those buildings just aren't built to withstand the amount of ground shaking that they experienced. You know, we have a somewhat of a similar problem here in Utah in that, you know, our building codes were a little bit late in being updated. So we have a lot of what's called unreinforced mason buildings in Utah, basically brick buildings. And brick buildings are not really good at withstanding the lateral shaking on with large earthquakes. They tend to collapse a lot easier than um, other engineered buildings. So we're getting better. Most of our new buildings are, are built up to a certain ground shaking code, and then we're retrofitting a lot of our historic buildings to be able to withstand that. But we do still have a lot of old buildings in the Wasatch Front area that would not withstand a lot of really heavy ground shaking. Yeah, I'm wondering also when the airport, I mean, it's still in the throes of this big renovation, the Salt Lake City International Airport. But am I correct in thinking that or, you know, reading about part of the expense of the remodeling of the airport had to do with seismological improvements and things like that? What exactly did they do there to make it so it will withstand a huge earthquake? I mean, I know the details. I'm not an engineer, but I know I do know one of the arguments besides, you know, the growth that we've had for having a new airport. But one of the arguments was that the old structure was not built to withstand the amount of ground shaking that we could expect for a large earthquake in Utah. So that was one of the arguments to build a new uh, airport, to have a more modern building that would be more seismically fit. Um, as far as what they do to help it withstand, there's a bunch of things they can do to, to help a building withstand ground shaking. And, and don't get me wrong here, the, the, the idea of a building being unscathed from an earthquake, that's not really the goal. The goal is to not have the building collapse and to have people be able to get out of the building. A building can, can be completely destroyed and condemned after an earthquake, but still be a success story because it didn't collapse and didn't kill people. So right. that's 
basically the, the idea is that you build these structures so they won't collapse. So you can add more shear strength so that the side to side shaking won't cause an earthquake or a building to collapse. You know, a lot of these old buildings, the simple fact that the building is just basically sitting on the foundation, it's not bolted to the foundation. So it just can slide off or the roof is not 100% uh, attached to the walls. They're just relying on gravity to hold these buildings in place when that doesn't really work when you have these large magnitude events. So things like that, attaching the the uh, the building to the foundation, the roof, and then adding shear strength and, and to, to help the building not collapse. And then also just modern, like wood structures are much better at withstanding ground shaking than brick because wood bends but doesn't break. You know, brick um, and the mortar in between the bricks, it just crumbles with ground shaking. So there's different things that things I do. But like I said, I'm not an engineer, so I don't know the details of all that. If you're just tuning in, we are talking to Dr. Jamie Farrow from the University of Utah Seismograph Stations. Jamie, so we look at the, remember the earthquake, we all remember the earthquake from 2020 in Magna, 5.7, and this earthquake in Turkey, which was a 7.8. Mathematically, that's only a difference of 2.1, but how it manifests in terms of ground shaking is enormous. Can you explain to us or give us an idea of what a 7.8 feels like versus a 5.7? Yeah, so the, the, the first thing to know is that the magnitude scale like you said, it's only 2.1 uh, difference between 7.8 and 5.7, but the magnitude scale is what's called a logarithmic scale. So every one unit, say from five to six, is a tenfold increase in the size of the earthquake. So if you just look at how big the earthquake is, a difference between a 7.8 and a 5.7, the 7.8 is about 126 times bigger than a magnitude 5.7. But there's another caveat. If you talk about the amount of energy released, which scales to the amount of ground shaking that you feel, every magnitude change, again, from say a five to a six, is a 32 times difference in the amount of energy release. So there, the difference between a magnitude 7.8 and a magnitude 5.7 is just astonishing. 7.8 is about 1,400 times larger, releases 1,400 times more energy than a magnitude 5.7. In other words, you would have to have about 1,400 magnitude 5.7 earthquakes, the magna earthquake that we had, to equal the amount of energy that was released in that one magnitude 7.8. Wow, I can't even imagine that because I know from our perspective up here in Park City, that magnitude earthquake almost felt like a really big avalanche right behind my house. Still still devastating for a lot of people in Magna. So did you learn anything new about the Wasatch Fault after this Magna earthquake? Well, one big thing that we learned is, you know, if we look at the pattern of aftershocks from the magnitude 5.7, the Magna earthquake, and we can look at those at depth, and then you know just where the the main shock was. One thing that we that that we figured out is that the the Wasatch Fault is most likely what we call a listric fault. And what that means is that the dip of the fault shallows as you go down the fault. So for the longest time, people just assumed that these normal faults, like the Wasatch Fault, had a constant dip, and that was mapped at like 50 degrees. So it dips 50 degrees towards the valley from the surface. But 
you know, looking at data from this earthquake and then other earthquakes too, it looks like that the dip of the Wasatch Fault shallows with depth. And what that means is that if you compare the two, if you had a constant dip and the earthquake ruptured, say, nine kilometers down dip from the surface, a fault plane with a constant dip of 50 degrees, that earthquake would be much deeper than on a Listric fault where the dip shallows with depth. So what that means is that you can have a, a an earthquake rupture on a fault, but it would be closer to the surface than what we would assume with a constantly dipping fault. And that means that the ground shaking would be much higher at the surface than we would expect. And then also, since it, 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 it would it extend it over towards more towards the middle of the valley where you have a lot of people, a lot of structures um, that could be damaged as well. So it does have a, um, um, implications for hazard and then risk about given a certain magnitude earthquake, um, we might expect stronger ground shaking with a listric fault than with a constantly dipping fault. Wow, that is really interesting. Jamie, you may roll your eyes at this story or you might shake your head and, as in, yes, that can happen. But we had a well driller come out and drill a well for us when we were building a new house and the well failed and he blamed it on the seismic activity that ruptured, you know, his the shaft that went down into the earth and saying that there's seismic activity all over the Wasatch Mountains. And, you know, it was sort of confirmed by other well drillers that that was a tall tale uh, for someone who didn't want to redo the well. <laughs> You're shaking your head, yes. But it does give rise to that question about what happens subterranean in, you know, in this, with all this seismic activity, you know, what happens to, you know, how far is the geology affected? How far under the ground is the geology affected? And, and what sorts of changes can happen? Well, if you look at the pattern of earthquakes around Utah and other places as well, we're not unique here, but like we certainly have earthquakes that are clearly occurring on well-mapped faults, like the Wasatch Fault, right? Or even other smaller faults around Utah. But we also have earthquakes that are occurring where there's no known fault. And these are occurring on, on most likely these smaller little faults that are, that are under the surface that have never ruptured up to the surface. So we have no way of knowing they're there because we can't see evidence of them at the surface. But we know that they're rupturing at depth because these little earthquakes are occurring on them. So every time you have an earthquake, that means something is breaking underground. Some sort of rock is breaking because enough stress has built up to cause it to break. And that's what's causing the earthquake. And, you know, depending on the size of the earthquake, we're talking maybe a foot to a few feet to meters of, of what's breaking. So, you know, every time there's an earthquake occurring, something is breaking um, underground. And, you know, the, the problem is when you have a big enough earthquake and that rupture makes it all the way up to the surface, you see these faults occur at the surface where you get ground break and, and you get offsets on the ground. And, you know, one of the big things that we talk about, uh, you know, we like to talk about damage because of collapsing buildings from earthquakes. But one thing we, you know, we don't really talk about a lot 
is that we have a lot of utilities that are buried shallowly in the ground, right? And when you have ground rupture, that can break a lot of those things. So one thing you have to keep in mind when planning a city or whatever, or planning your response to a large earthquake is saying, okay, we know the fault is here. If we have a large earthquake and that fault ruptures on the surface, it's probably gonna break whatever it goes by, but not only roads, but also utilities that are buried in the ground. So we need to be able to know what's gonna be available, what's not gonna be available. You know, and one little thing to, to think about is for example, in Salt Lake City, you know, one of our big hospitals is up at the University of Utah. And if we have a large earthquake that ruptures across the road, it's gonna be hard to get up there by via vehicles, cars. So that's another thing to think about is how, where will you be able to go to respond to an earthquake and where will you not be able to go? And, you know, there has been studies on trying to estimate what would happen in and around Utah, specifically on the Wasatch Front for a large earthquake. And, you know, one of the big things is the availability of drinkable water. Mm. And the, the one of the one of the takeaways is that we probably won't have access to potable water for quite a long time after a really large earthquake. So that can go into people's planning for emergency response for planning of store water and that kind of stuff. But those are the kind of things we think of. Yeah, there's it's a really big world that seismologists operate in, really. I wanted to ask you about the Uinta Basin where there's a lot of fracking activity and you often hear sort of these seismologists mentioned and talk about the the geology that's changing with fracking. And I'm just wondering what you might offer up on that. Well, the idea with these induced seismicity from from that type of work is that when you're when you're drilling, you know, there's a lot of fluids involved in drilling and once they once they're drilling, they try to figure out how to, how to store that wastewater or the, the drilling mud. So one of the things they do is they pump it back into the ground at high pressures. And that does one, two things. One, um, it can get rid of the wastewater, another way to store it. But they also can do fracking, like you said, where they pump it, lift fluids in at high pressures and actually break the rock uh, in the subsurface, which produces pathways for fluids to, to, to flow in, like for example, oil to pump out or, or natural gas to pump out. But what the, the danger here is that when you pump all these fluids at high pressures down into the earth, like I told you before, there are a lot of unknown little faults down in the subsurface that we don't know they're there. So if you're pumping fluids into these unknown faults, um, not only are you putting high pressure in there, uh, but you're also lubricating these faults with fluids and you can cause these little earthquakes to occur. And if that somehow reaches a larger fault, um, you can induce a larger sized earthquake by pumping these fluids back into the earth. And this has happened many times. They have produced you know, magnitude five plus earthquakes because they've pumped fluids into the ground and produced earthquakes that actually cause damage. So aside from these human caused earthquakes, is there any sort of detection system or warning system that's in development or actually useful so that we can plan ahead or at least have a short notice ahead of time? Yeah, I mean, for detection, you know, we have a large seismic network in and around Utah that we run out of the University of Utah seismograph stations and that, that you know, hundreds of, of seismometers around the state that are constantly um, measuring ground motion. And all that data comes into our system and we locate earthquakes automatically and send out alarms to 
to seismologists. And then, you know, if it's big enough, we send out alarms to other people, dam operators and that kind of stuff for, for earthquakes. But as far as warning, there is a number of uh, a new system that's actually now kind of in development and, and starting to go online on the West Coast. It's called Earthquake Early Warning. And we're just kind of starting a kind of a feasibility study to see if that would work here um, in Utah. And the idea is that when an earthquake happens, um, there's different types of seismic waves that, that go out. So the first seismic wave that you feel from an earthquake is called the primary wave or the P wave. Um, and that shakes the ground in, um, in, in mostly a vertical motion up and down. Following the P wave is what's called the shear wave or the S wave. And that shakes the ground in a, in a horizontal motion. And the damage is mostly caused by the shear wave, most of the damage. So the fact that the P wave travels much faster than the shear wave, we can use that to kind of help us. And what we do is when, when an earthquake happens and all our instruments first see the P wave, we can hurry up, locate the earthquake, estimate the size of the earthquake, and then we can calculate the amount of shaking that you would expect from the incoming shear wave. And we can do this all in real time and we can send out alarms to all you know, different things you know, fire stations to open up their, their garage doors, trains to stop trains, uh, gas companies to shut down gas lines, um, all that kind of stuff. And they can send those out in real time and say, you're going to expect strong ground shaking in the next, you know, three, four, five, ten seconds, depending on how far you are from the earthquake. And that's kind of the new thing that's coming online now. It's called earthquake early warning. And those few seconds can be very critical as far as saving lives. Um, so that's one thing you do. It's not 100% sure that it would work here. The problem is in Utah that 85% of our population lives on the Wasatch Fault, pretty much really close to it. So the closer you are to the source of the fault, the difference between that P wave and S wave gets shorter and shorter. But you know maybe it'll work. So if there's a, a big earthquake on one end of the Wasatch Fault, we would have ample warning on the other on the other side. Say if there's a big earthquake on the um, in, in, on the Provo segment of the Wasatch Fault, maybe we'd have a few seconds of warning in Salt Lake or up, you know, in Davis County. We, we're, we're starting those kind of feasibility uh, studies right now to see if it could work. But yeah, it's a it's it's one thing that that we're looking into. Well, Jamie, is there anything you would want to tell the residents of the Wasatch Front and back with regards to the Wasatch Fault? Is it, I mean, it's still active. It's still a threat, correct? Oh, 100%. I mean, this, this, the idea that I showed you that it would take 1,400 magna-sized earthquakes to equal one magnitude 7.8. Um, it would take hundreds of magna-sized earthquakes to equal one magnitude 7 um, earthquake. So basically what that tells you is that the 5.7 that we experienced in 2020 was not the big one. And it does not even affect the timing of the big one coming. It's still there. There's still enough stress built up on the Wasatch Fault to produce a large earthquake. But what the, what the magnet event was, was a wake-up call. It was a reminder that we live in earthquake country and that we should expect 
earthquakes in the future. There's a recent study that came out that said our probability uh, on the Wasatch Front of having a magnitude six or greater in the next 50 years is 57%. Our probability of having a magnitude 6.75 or greater in the next 50 years along the Wasatch Front is 43%. So those are significant percentages of having a large magnitude, you know, not really big, we're not talking about 7.5 or 7.8, but still a magnitude of earthquake that would do a lot of damage to some of our older structures that we have here in Utah, a lot more than we experienced in 2020 in 5.7. So I, I think the take home is that the better you're prepared now, the better you will be an hour after the next big earthquake or a day after the next big earthquake or even a year after the next big earthquake. So the, the point is that we should be prepared for a large earthquake or any other natural disaster that we may you know, have here uh, in Utah. That'll greatly help in the hours, days to months after the, that next event. Great words to end on. Well, thank you, Dr. Farrell, for joining us today. For more information about earthquakes in our region, visit the U of U seismograph stations at quake.utah.edu. And Dr. Farrell, we know you are an expert on Yellowstone and earthquakes and seismic activity up there. So we'll love to have you back on again when Yellowstone starts to rumble up. I would love to. Hopefully not too soon. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. And you're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. We'll be speaking with a local hmm, cryptocurrency expert, Megan Vita. Everything you wanted to know about cryptocurrency and all of those words circulating around, but maybe we're too afraid to ask when we return. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. <clears throat> And I'm Katie Mullally. Well, it's no secret that Park City and the surrounding area is a sought-after place to live and attracts all manner of interesting people who base their operations sometimes right out of their own homes. One such Park City resident, Megan Vita, joins us today to talk about what she does from her home office. And if you find yourself scratching your head and even burying it in the sand, perhaps, when you hear these words like cryptocurrency, blockchain, Web3, gaming, or Bitcoin, well, this conversation is for you. Megan is a co-instructor for a global cryptocurrency course from a company called Crypto Banter, and she joins us now in the studio. Megan, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you so much, Len and Katie. I'm so excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and I'm just going to start here. Have, have I missed it, or... When I go to Park City Market to get my groceries for dinner, can I pay in blockchain? I just don't know that I can. No, you definitely cannot. Not yet, at least. <laughs> okay. And so I guess that that's the lead into how widespread is it and how much are we really missing out if we are still in the dark about cryptocurrency in general? It's a really good question. I think if you are interested in the future of the internet, um, you could be missing out by not learning more about what's happening in the space today. Um, if you're interested in finding more ways to pay for things that you buy already, you're not missing out on anything. Um, I think the future of this space is one that will be defined over the coming decade and change a lot of what we do in our building and, and tech in generally today. 
Great. Well, okay. So from your home office, you are co-teaching this course that is literally thousands of people at the same time getting on. I'm assuming they're from all over the world. They are, are they people like us who are wanting to learn or are they people who are already investors and are just learning more about how to be smart, efficient, and also to see the signs of volatility? Yeah, so we have a a couple of different courses. We ran our first one this past fall, and it was more of a beginner course, which would be fit for anyone um, from anywhere. It's free, which is exciting, and available on apps like YouTube. Um, But the the one we're coaching now is is more for traders. It's for beginner traders, intermediate traders, people who know a little bit about multiple things but want to hone in on their skill set, what type of indicators to look for, learning about new tokens, meeting like-minded traders, people who have some more goals, right, with their with their um, savings and what they want to kind of achieve uh, by trading crypto. Um, we do have people from all over the world. We have about 4,000 students every month, um, which we sign up online on our Twitter, on our YouTube, um, on our newsletter, and primarily from the, the channel, the Crypto Banter YouTube channel. So we have a couple hundred students from North America, similar amount from Africa, Europe, um, tons from Australia and Southeast Asia, um, all walks of life, people who have lost lots of money, millions in the collapse of, um, you know, exchanges like FTX. Um, we have people who have traded a hundred bucks and that's it because they're just too, too afraid uh, to risk more, right? So um, it's challenging to serve them with the content they want and answer the questions uh, from thousands of people at the same time when they have various levels of knowledge and, and kind of experience, but it's also amazing. It's amazing to see their faces on Zoom and, and talk to them every day in our community, which primarily interacts on Discord, um, which is previously a tool for mainly gamers, um, gaming communities. So it's really um, grown with the, uh, with the growth of crypto. Um, it's been ex- so satisfying to just hear their stories. And most of them are, some of them are tragic, to be honest. Um, I mean, it's, it's sad. And, and the, the kind of fraud and issues that are rampant in crypto have impacted people all over the world. I think it's unique to be able to see them and hear their stories in this format. Um, I previously, uh, from joining Crypto Banter, I didn't see that, you know, I was focused on building a little startup in the Web3 gaming space um, and you kind of read about stories and, and people that that have these, um, their savings tied up and had this like big risk, right, that collapsed, but it's, it's really fulfilling and interesting and really brings a, a human touch to um, how important it is um, as we look to the future of the industry for safety, right, and education. Well, you talk about the future of the industry and you mentioned earlier the evolution of the internet and... Tell me about how the internet is going to expand and grow as cryptocurrency and blockchains grow, because it it doesn't seem like our current structure, Internet 2.0, you'd say, can um, basically sustain what we've got going on. Totally. Um, You know, one of the podcasts I listened to when I first dove down the rabbit hole of crypto about two years ago was um, with Andreessen Horowitz and Chris Dixon, who's their lead partner on crypto. And he explained, and he's very technical, so he, he goes into details that I definitely cannot, but he explained it in a really simple way. Um, Web 1.0 gave us the ability to read about things online, right, um, in the 90s. You're just reading websites. They look terrible. They're very basic, and all you can do is read them and consume them. Um, Web 2.0, which we're kind of coming out of now, um, you have the ability to read and write. It's super easy to create a website now. You have these no-code tools. Anyone can do it, mom and pops, gas stations, whoever, um, all the way through Amazon, right? So you can read and write easily on the internet. And Web 3.0 is now we have the ability to 
read, write, and transact on the internet, which you might say, hey, I can transact online. I order from Amazon a couple times a week. What's the big deal? Why does this matter? Well, now with crypto and blockchain tech, you can do it in a decentralized way at scale without any intermediary, right? You don't have Amazon, you don't have payment providers that you kind of need to hook into and pay fees to if you're trying to launch a startup. You can do it all on chain. And it's not super user friendly yet. Um, you're looking at me like, <laughs> okay, so if I want to make a transaction and buy some crypto or purchase an NFT, how in the world do I do that? And I think the space has a long way to go to onboard everyday people who aren't interested in, you know, jumping through 10 hoops and, and ladders to, to kind of uh, buy something, but just this abili ability to transact globally without banking fees, paying third-party services, um, requirements to KYC, right, upload, upload a passport, um, verify your funds is huge for people around the world. And that's why I think uh, Web 3.0 will definitely be and already is um, transforming just tech and the internet in general. So in terms of the, the global currency exchange, I guess that works if you're buying things solely online, where in this day, we still have tangible products that we're buying back and forth and exchanging a credit card payment for a tank full of gas. Um, do you see that more and more of our transactions are going to happen globally, or at least online? Because a lot of people I know are trying to cut back on their online purchasing because we're losing that tangible element. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think anytime soon, um, kind of the use case for, for crypto and purchasing things in real life um, day to day isn't there. Um, I don't really know if it'll ever get there. I guess at some point it will make sense from a business perspective if I can accept payments without paying a fee, right? Um, say you go to a nail salon or, or you buy something there. Like if you pay in cash or if you send us Venmo, um, we won't charge you a 3% upcharge because that's kind of the take rate from that third-party service provider, right? So potentially from a business perspective, at some point it could make sense to buy everyday goods in crypto. Um, but right now I think what's more interesting is just the combination of transacting through crypto and blockchain on the internet. Um, so yeah. Mm. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Megan Vita. She is a consultant for Crypto Banter. It's a YouTube channel. She teaches about cryptocurrency. She came from a company called Nifty League, which was uh, a gaming company. Is that is that simple enough to just call it a gaming company? And, and I want to get into this whole connection between gaming and crypto. Yeah, um, this is a deep rabbit hole, which I am passionate about because I think and, and really believe that gaming is the fastest and most simple use case to onboard billions of people into crypto. Um, I personally am not a gamer in my day-to-day -day life. I have two little kids and they run me uh, ragged. But growing up, I can remember playing Donkey Kong in my, my grandmother's basement and, and just kind of loving Nintendo, Sega, you know, everything um, to do with like the old school arcade vibe of games and that nostalgia. Um, and Nifty League brought that to life in, in Web3 by launching a, um, an NFT drop in October 2021. 10,000 NFTs were minted. The company funded themselves um, and raised a little over $3 million in two days by dropping these NFTs. Um, and the, which sounds a little bit ridiculous because really what they, what they are are JPEGs. They're pictures um, that sit on the internet and uh, on chain, right? So if I wanted to buy an NFT, I take my 
um, MetaMask wallet, which is a crypto wallet. I fund it with um, Ethereum, and I purchase this JPEG, which is a picture of an alien or a monkey or um, you know, a cowboy uh, <laughs> with really cool colors. And I'm like, great, okay, I just spent $1,000 on this JPEG, now what can I do? Um, but what, what it really does for startups is it allows you to bootstrap your, your company without venture funding, in theory, right? And it allows you to um, grow a community of people that care about your project because they bought an asset, they spent money on it. Um, and in the case of Nifty League, it was um, it cost a lot of money. It was the peak of the bull market last fall. Um, but many, many companies now are minting them for free. Um, so you get something for free and you feel part of the community. You own something and you, you say, wow, this could be worth something uh, one day. Well, your last about five utterances, I think 50% of it was words that are industry words and that you understand very well. And I'm kind of holding on for dear life right now. But let's go to this example that you gave us about a Super Bowl commercial that uh, I, I viewed and Katie viewed. And it basically came up with all I really saw was this QR code and it said, scan this now. Something I never would have done because I would have thought it was some advertisement or something that was going to capture my, my data or, you know, my privacy. But what you told us is that they were also dropping like 10,000 NFTs um, and giving them away. Is this it? Or yeah. explain that and explain why you understood that ad and I did not. Interesting. <laughs> well, it was an ad. To be honest, that's what it is. And, um, and people that work in, in Web3 and, and understand what, why NFTs are powerful when it comes to onboarding people into gaming ecosystems, for instance, NFTs are ads. They're free ads, which you can give to people. Um, and in turn, you get someone to join your ecosystem, right? So you saw the Super Bowl commercial. It was for Limit Break, and they have a collection called Digi Daigaku. Um, also a local Park City resident uh, building that business, which is super interesting. Um, so basically you scan it, you go to a website, you usually have to have a crypto wallet to um, get part of the waiting list and mint this free NFT, right? And mint just means buy it essentially. Um, and then you own it. And what's interesting about it is because the gaming space has become just, uh, the margins are razor thin for people to build games, whether they're indie developers or large gaming studio studios like Blizzard or Voodoo, Activision, um, you know, you have to acquire users through advertising marketplaces. And the take rate on advertising marketplaces is pretty high. Um, Facebook controls them, Google controls them, third parties control them, right? So the business automatically loses money um, by, by having to acquire them through these ad exchanges. So if I can show you a Super Bowl commercial, which was a pretty extensive uh, slot, just as one yeah. example, um, and, and you scan it and you get something and you're not onboarding into my ecosystem, it's free for me, right? In theory, I paid for the slot on the Super Bowl, but there's a lot of other examples you can do this without paying, you know, $7 million for, for a spot on TV. Um, and this is a way for, for kind of startups to bypass, bypass these third-party exchanges and take power back, I think, and, and give it to a community of people who really do own something and believe in it and contribute and grow it with you, which I think is much more exciting and empowering than just seeing an ad, you know, in a game or on, on Google and downloading something and it feels clickbaity and kind of spammy, right? It's a little mm -hmm. bit more organic. And in theory, you should be more bought in to helping grow and share the word about the ecosystem than you would be if you just saw an ad. Mm, okay, <laughs> love it. I'm still a little confused 
by some, maybe it's the terminology, maybe it's the methodology in which these things are promoted, but we were just talking about, we were given an ad, yay, thank you so much, <laughs> and then we're given the chance to mint this thing for free, which means we're buying this thing that's free. I'm not quite sure how that works. Is there, speaking to somebody in their 50s, how am I buying something that's free? So typically you would buy these NFTs in gaming. A big kind of trend is to build on a layer two, which means gas, which is a fee that you pay to a network to transact is much cheaper, pennies, pennies. And a lot of times companies pay that for you just so there's no friction. If you scanned that, that QR code and you went to the website and you wanted to mint something, Oftentimes, you'd have to go and buy a token on an exchange, put it back in your wallet in order to buy it. That, that's just a terrible user experience, right? So we can give you that for free by giving you the couple of cents it costs to make the transaction on blockchain. Um, and there are ways to kind of uh, become, make a more seamless uh, user onboarding flow with, with uh, crypto and Web3, but um, it's still tough. But in theory, you know, uh, last time I checked, you're know, walking down the street, say you're in Times Square, wherever, someone's handing you a flyer saying come to some event and giving you something out for free. It's not, it's not always the case that you want it. If anything, you're skeptical. You're like, why? I don't want to take something for free. How do I know it's good? Yeah. Why should I care? Um, so I think there's still a healthy amount of skepticism in the space. And, and that, that sentiment is definitely still there. Um, but in theory, like the, the kind of reason why this has all exploded is people have found projects, found NFTs before they became big and mainstream. And you find them through sleuthing the blockchain and it's all open source, so anyone can do it. I can show you a website after the show where you can check what NFTs are held by really wealthy people in this space and kind of go back and see, okay, is there, is there a mint available? Can I get something for free? Because the chances that that may be worth something, and oftentimes that's in the tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, which is the case for Limit Break and the commercial that came on during the Super Bowl, you got something that's worth thousands of dollars and you, you paid nothing for it. That's pretty incredible. And the last time I checked, you definitely could not do that with anything outside of crypto that I've heard of recently. So there is so much money, and I do that in air quotes, because this is a very much an intangible digital currency that we're talking about. And not that we can, we've learned the hard way that we can't really count on banks here in this physical world, but what are the securities put into the crypto world to ensure that, you know, the million dollars that I theoretically have sitting in a cryptocurrency somewhere just don't disappear? Not enough yet, to be honest. I mean, it's it's tragic, kind of the lack of regulation, in my opinion, that's happened to date and the amount of people that have just, you know, dumped money and savings into the space and lost it. And I've seen it firsthand um, and, it, and it's tough. And it, it's an experience that if you, if you meet anyone in crypto, everyone will have a story. Mm -hmm. They paid too much for something, it went down to zero. Um, the, the word that a lot of people refer to this as is a rug pull, you know, um, people pitched you something, you were bought in, and then they scammed you by taking all the money and just dumping the project. There's no future, they're not building anything, they're retired, they're going to Puerto Rico, they're sitting on the beach somewhere and just enjoying all the money that they took from the people that, that trusted them, right? And that's tragic, and that's why, you know, a lot of people must think about the regulation that's coming, especially faster in the U.S. Um, around securities law as needed. And I think it will flush out a lot of bad actors. It will make the space more trustworthy for 
everyday people to feel comfortable going online, um, whether it's trading crypto or minting NFTs, if you feel safe, like that's a great thing for the space. And it will be, there are going to be bumps and hurdles along the way and terrible stories and things that happen, just like there were in the financial collapse. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we're still getting there and it's, it's a painful process. <laughs> Um, it seems sort of like a contradiction in terms of part of the reason that um, cryptocurrencies even came about was this, you know, the word decentralization and not having banks own what and making their money off our money. Um, and then to introduce regulation seems to be, uh, you know, sort of a contradiction. How in the space, in the world of cryptocurrency, what kind of regulations do you want to see versus those that you don't want to see? It's a really good question. So um, with the collapse of FTX, basically what happened is they were taking money on behalf of individuals, retail investors like ourselves, and keeping them on their exchange and making you feel a sense of security that that's held somewhere safe, like you would putting money into Wells Fargo, right? Um, I put my money there it's gonna be there when I come back to get it, you know, in a week, a month, a year. Um, they actually didn't do that. They mixed their books, they used the funds from retail investors to invest in risky startups. They didn't back it by um, fiat or stable coins. So stable coins are basically crypto that's pegged to a fiat currency. So if I claim as an exchange to match every you know, dollar worth of Bitcoin that you have to a stable coin, it, it should give you a sense of certainty that they're holding my money, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're keeping it safe somewhere. And when you want to withdraw it, according to like whatever you invested in, you can, and it'll be there. That wasn't the case for FTX, Celsius. There's so many examples mm -hmm. we could talk about. Um, and I think the, the US especially needs to regulate these companies and make sure that they do things that they say and claim to their consumers, just like we expect from businesses outside of crypto. Um, Definitely, they will have downsides. So uh, a big announcement that's kind of been in the, in the news this past week is staking. So what's interesting about um, crypto is if, say, you bought a Bitcoin, right? You can stake it, which means I'm going to park it away, put it in an account, and leave it there. I'm not going to take it out for a year, just like uh, a retirement account, right? Re very, very similar. Um, so there's some new regulation around staking and whether or not that's going to be allowed, especially here in the U.S. Um, what kind of trips people up when they're new to the space is you get these supposed insanely high returns when you stake, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're into the De DeFi space, you'll see returns of 50% APY, right? I put, uh, and that's just totally unrealistic. Wow. It's not going to yeah. happen. Um, it did in the height of the bull if you, if you kind of knew the right ones, but very easily those tokens can go to zero. There's no money behind it. The promise is just really not there. Um, and it, in my opinion, shouldn't be allowed, right? It, it's just a, a slippery slope. Okay, here's a question and maybe a bit of an indicator. People who work in your space, work for gaming companies or cryptocurrency companies, do you all get paid in cryptocurrency? And if you do, are you able to request, oh, I, I want it to be paid in whatever type of cryptocurrency can you have that choice yeah 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 um i've been paid in crypto for two years um depending on the company sometimes they'll offer you a little bit more if you want to be paid in their own token right so you can kind of get a little bit of a bonus um i think it gives a certainty to the company that you feel invested in what we're building in the future um but what's important to know is that you should really um off-ramp right and and, and trade 
if you do get paid in crypto and it's one that's volatile, you should trade it for a stable coin and then send it to Wells Fargo. This actually sounds uh, a lot harder than it is. Coinbase has made amazing, amazing steps in their product to make it super simple to say, okay, I've got these 10 crypto tokens in my in my account. Um, I ha There's a quick dialogue. You put in your Wells Fargo information and three days later it's sent there with no fees at all. Um, what's amazing about getting paid in crypto is that it's immediate. There are no, there's no $16 charge on my Wells Fargo statement from getting paid from a company based outside of the U.S. Um, hmm. I can track the transaction. I have a nice ledger of who sent it and when. Was it the right amount? Um, it's, it's for me much preferred. Um, it's simple. You can tell them where to send it. You can keep your funds separated without going into Wells Fargo and, and giving 10, 10 different paperwork to set up a separate bank account, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, crypto payments are uh, uh, personally preferred. <laughs> Well, it's, so it started, we started with Bitcoin, and it seems like every few weeks there's another brand of crypto. Mm -hmm. The more brands, if you will, that are developed, does that dilute the value of the crypto itself? No, I don't think so. Um, there are different sort of uh, pieces of the stack where these brands that you're referring to uh, fit, right? So there's a layer one, uh, Bitcoin's a layer one, Ethereum's a layer run, um, many different examples. There's a lot in the kind of the DeFi space as well. And then there's a layer two, right? And a lot of these tokens um, are kind of, you can think of them as um, add-ons to the layer one, right? So you can create, easily create, anyone can easily create a crypto token. Um, but but you know, there's just less trading volume, less less uh, presence for that token. Um, I think layer ones are interesting. If you if you want to go kind of learn more, I would uh, definitely suggest diving into the layer one ecosystem first, because there's a lot out there. It doesn't dilute the value, um, but eventually, a lot of these, I would say, honestly, 99% of them will be weeded out, and we won't know, you know, a about them a couple years from now or even months. Mm. Well, Megan Vita, I think we could talk to you all day and maybe in a few hours after your little course for us, we, <laughs> we might be able to talk this language, speak this language a little more readily. But it's really, it's so interesting. So thank you so much for coming in and joining us here in the studio for Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Lynn and Katie. It was so much fun. And is it okay? You sent us some great talking points with some good articles for reference. I think we'll go ahead and post that on our website. Sounds great. I love that. All right. Thank you.